heart. Say this with me. This is my Bible. God's written living word to me. It's how he thinks. It tells me what God says I can have. And explains to me who God says I am. Because it's how he thinks. I choose to believe and act on what I'll read. And therefore, I am transformed. Amen. Thank you for spending your uh, Memorial Day weekend with us, at least on this uh, great Sunday morning. It's uh, good to be back in the pulpit as we continue in our study on the book of Romans. We're in chapter 8 this morning, and I'd like for you to join me there as we read the first 13 verses together. I'll be reading... In chapter 8, starting in verses one, or verse 1, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Translation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ, or in Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Jesus. But if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Last week we learned some things from the last several verses of chapter 7 that I've had quite a response to. Very positive. I've had people email, I've had people drop me texts, and just the overwhelming response has been, oh my goodness. <laughs> we didn't know that. I'd like to just summarize what we did discuss last week and encourage you to go listen to the message online. If you are a follower of law, if you are 
If you are given to the pursuit of moral behavior, right and wrong, and trying to change and adjust constantly your behavior, you will never find the Christian experience and the Christian walk to be enjoyable. Paul argues in the last verses of chapter 7 that we studied last week that the law cannot give life. He follows that in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 21 by saying, If a law had been given that could have given life, then covenant membership really would have been by the law. So we talked about then this argument that goes back and forth in those last verses of chapter 7 about this supposed dual nature of the Christian that we have both a good nature and an evil nature that we have both the saved man and the lost man still residing within us I had one individual that said would you send me your notes because I, I, I'm going to have to do some further study I, I'm not sure I can get my head around this right now. <laughs> I haven't, I just, this is the first time I'm, I'm really wrestling with, with this idea that the Christian does not have a dual nature. You are not both good and evil. So we talked about this in the light of what Paul had said. He, he brings out in um, verses 15 through 23, and I'll just summarize I do not understand my actions. I do not do what I want. I do the thing I hate. Nothing good dwells in me. I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want to. The evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. There's a war going on in my mind, and it makes me captive to the law of sin. We come away from that saying, oh my gosh. This seems to be my life as a Christian. This is, this is what my Christian experience has been like. And I submit to you that Paul was not arguing in those verses the point that we as believers have a dual nature, but he was talking about the unbeliever prior to the new birth. Two things to consider. He says nothing about the new birth in those verses. Secondly, he doesn't even mention the Holy Spirit in all of chapter 7. But when you get to chapter 8, the chapter we are now embarking on and going to begin our study of, the Holy Spirit is mentioned over 19 times in that one chapter. Paul is arguing from a pre-Christ and after-Christ scenario or reality. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 and verse 21 says this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That is the state of every person who's born again. You are not the same person you used to be that Paul describes in chapter 7. After you accept Jesus into your heart. You become a new creature in Christ. Verse 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. 
I refuse to continue to refer to myself as a sinner saved by grace after I have received Jesus. I was a sinner. Yes, I was saved by grace. But according to Paul, I am now the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. My country has changed. My nature has changed. I used to be a fallen sinner. But now I'm the righteousness of God because he's put his DNA in me. And so as we leave chapter 7 going into chapter 8, what we realize in the last two verses of chapter 7 is Paul's crying out from this place of, of sinfulness, of this place prior to the new birth, saying, oh, what a wretched man I am. Who's going to deliver me from this kind of lifestyle of the thing that I would, I do not, and the thing that I don't want to do, I do. Who will deliver me? And he says, thank God through Jesus Christ. And we enter chapter 8. Now, I want to remind you of how important it is to always, when you're studying your Bible, to realize that these were letters. Most of the New Testament are individual letters that Paul penned writing to churches. They had no chapter and verse designation. And so as we finish chapter 7, you must continue to read right into chapter 8 and not thinking about it in terms of chapter and verse designation, but as one content of Paul arguing one point and then moving right into the next to declare your freedom in Jesus Christ. If you're born again, you are free in Jesus Christ from the sin nature. That sin nature no longer belongs to you. It no longer has any power over you. You're no longer subservient, a servant of. That sin nature is Paul's argument as we start then in chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is the answer to Romans chapter 7. That the law of sin and death, that sin nature, has been nullified and eradicated. I want to ask you a question. How many of you know what the word nullified means? <laughs> How many of you know what the word eradicated means? All right. I am not going to ask. How many of you have a Webster's Dictionary at home? Oh, that's not good. All right. You don't have to go out and buy one. Webster's Dictionary is actually an online app that you can use right in your browser by going out to Webster.com. I want to give you the definition of the word nullify. I quote, to cause something to lose its value or to have no effect. Do you know that the sin nature has lost its value and no longer has any effect in your life if you're a Christian? Then I looked up the word eradicate. It means to remove something completely, to eliminate or destroy it. That's what Paul's talking about here. Yes, I used to have a sinful nature before receiving Christ. Yes, the thing that I would, I did not do. And the thing I didn't want to do, I found myself doing that. Oh man, I was a mess. But after receiving Jesus and the new birth, I became a new creation in him. And Paul's whole argument in chapter 7 and in chapter 8 is this is what I used to be, chapter 7. But this is who I am now. Chapter 8. Hallelujah. 
So let's continue now. Verse 1, chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The mere translation says, every bit of condemning evidence against us is canceled. Isn't that great? Can you say it out loud? Every bit. Come on. Say it again. We need, we need to, our ears need to hear that ring. Every bit of condemning evidence against us is canceled. And I want you to note that that line that's in some of your translations, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, that sentence was not in the original text. It was added from verse 4. You know what's interesting about that? Religion under the law always feels more comfortable with the condition of personal contribution rather the conclusion of what faith reveals. How about you this morning? As a believer, do you still feel you need to personally contribute to your right standing with God? I don't know what to do with the way you're looking at me. <laughs> As a believer, do you still feel like you need to contribute to your right standing with God? Are you still in a place where you just are not satisfied with your, your daily walk with Jesus until you've been able to check off a list of good behaviors, spiritual disciplines from the do-it-yourself tree? Paul's answer to that in verse 1 is there is now no more condemnation, no more judgment. It's all been removed. Every condemning bit of evidence against, against us is canceled. Who are in Christ. There's the message of the New Testament. In fact, dear ones, that is the pin code of all of the Bible. I don't know if you heard me. How many of you have one of these um, debit cards? Huh? This is from my bank. This allows me to go up to any ATM in the world. I even use this over in Finland. Stick this little plastic piece, little piece of plastic into a machine and get money out of it. It's amazing how it works. <laughs> but there's something that it always asks for. A pin code to unlock the resources that are behind it. When you get born again... You become a clean slate, you have the very nature of God and all of heaven's resources. In fact, God's very DNA is deposited into your spirit and your life. And then he gives you a pin code. Have you ever tried to use this somewhere and you couldn't remember your pin code? Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. 
Oh, I'm so sorry. And you're looking behind you, and there's a long line, and everybody's... Uh, no, that won't work. Do you take American Express? Uh, you don't. I'm sorry. You're messed up. I bet some of you have had to run out to the car and get something that you left there in exchange. I bet some of you have called your spouse because you couldn't check out and they had to bring you their, their card because they knew their pin code. I bet some of you have left your groceries sitting there in the cart, couldn't check out, said, I'll be right back. And you had to run home and get your pin code. I've done all of those. I've had Nina come get me, <laughs> bail me out. I've run out to the car because I had a different card out there that I had the pin code for. I've left my groceries, everything I was buying, or my clothes, or everything I had just shopped for, sitting at the counter. And had to go get the, for this little thing here. Now, everything on deposit didn't change. Are you listening to me? Everything standing behind this didn't change. It was available to me the whole time. But it required a pin code, Angelo. Linda, do you know what I'm talking about? You ever had problems? Have you ever forgotten your pin code? You have, sweetie? She asked you for it right now. Yeah. You don't know it. You're, you're, you're screwed. If you don't have any cash today for lunch, you're... And yet, all the resources behind this thing sits available to Angelo, but he doesn't have his pin code. I submit to you that when you received Jesus Christ as your Savior, all of heaven became available to you. God's very DNA of what he's like, how he lives, the joy, the righteousness, the peace, the victory over the sin nature. After all, Jesus did go there, right? Jesus was human. Jesus became a human on our behalf, lived and walked in this body, defeated sin in this body, using human flesh to defeat it. Which, by the way, I just want to point out that when Jesus defeated sin, that means that the physical frame is capable on this earth of defeating the power of sin. Not apart from the grace of God, but I'm just telling you, Jesus did it. Your body is not as weak as you think it is. It is not your body that's the problem. We too often aren't using the pin code that God gave us to draw on the DNA and the resources that he's planned for our life. Chapter 8, verse 2 through 4 is an explanation of Paul's victory declaration and answer to chapter 7, verse 24 and 25. Here's Weiss' translation of it. For that which is an impossibility for the law, because it was weak through the sinful nature, God having sent a son in likeness of, of flesh of sin, the flesh of sin, and concerning sin, condemned sin in the sinful nature, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be brought to completion in us, who, not as dominated by the sinful nature, are ordering our behavior, but as dominated by the Spirit. Isn't that good? Yeah. 
Did you notice this? For what was an impossibility for the law, God has done now by sending his son. And look at this, verse 4. In order, could you put that up, Sam, again? Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be brought to completion in us, throw your checklists away. Quit trying to add or help God out. Quit living in that space that you feel like you need to make a personal contribution before God will accept you as pure and clean and righteous. So Paul, speaking here of the new birth, says, look, God's already done this thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. This is all God's doing. I want Sam to show you this scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. First, I'm going to read it from the English Standard Version. Look at it. And because of him, there's a footnote there, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Literally, the footnote says, and from him you are in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going to read that from the mere translation which is, once again, taking the Greek renderings of these English words. Francois Dutois renders the Greek this way from the mirror. Sam, do you have that for us? Of God's doing are we in Christ. He is both the genesis and the genius of our wisdom. A wisdom that reveals how righteous, sanctified, and redeemed we already are in him. Isn't that great? See, that footnote there, when it says in Francois' translation, of God's doing, there's a footnote there. It comes from the Greek word ek, that always denotes origin or source. In other words, our association with Christ, not just mine, but all of mankind's, because Jesus died once for all, for all mankind. In God's economy, Christ represents us. Now, every other religion teaches that man has to use his willpower and his discipline to achieve right standing with God. In Christianity, it's what God's faith accomplished in Christ for us, and that's the difference. Did you hear me? Every other religion teaches you personal willpower, personal contribution. I have to reach towards God. I have to discipline myself by my will to achieve right standing. But in Christianity, the gospel message of the New Testament is that God accomplished that through his faith, through his son Jesus. Praise God. So, of his design are we in Christ. Wisdom, righteousness, holiness, redemption, identity, sanity, health, peace, joy. All of those are sourced in him. Not in my efforts, but in him. And so when Paul begins chapter 8 with, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. I want you to understand the import of that. 
again. The in Christ Pauline revelation of the New Testament from the New Testament is the pin code of all of the Bible. If you don't get the in Christ revelation of who you are and what God did for us through faith, his faith, and Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you will never understand so much of what the Bible teaches us. The Knox translation says it this way, it is from him that we take our origin. Christ is not only an example for us, Christ is an example of us. Now look with me, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4, again from the mirror translation, he associated us in Christ before the fall of the world. Jesus is God's mind made up about us. Isn't that good? Jesus is God's mind made up about us. He always knew in his love that he would present us again face to face with him in blameless innocence. Leave that up. Leave that up, please. Isn't that good? What happened when Adam and Eve, quote, fell? What's the first thing that happened? What did they do when God the next day, or if they fell in the morning, or if any of that's even literal, you get my, you get my point. They fell. God was used to coming and walking with them in the cool of the day. Now that either means early morning or later in the afternoon after things have cooled off, all right? So God comes for his devotional time of hugging on Adam and Eve. They've fallen. They've done what God said don't do. And what did they do? They did what? They did what? Say it out loud. This is not a trick. They hid from God's presence. What did God do? What's the first thing God said? Adam, where are you? How many of you know God wasn't having any problem with their geographical location? (laughs) Something had changed. This face-to-face Beautiful face-to-face relationship with Almighty God, the Creator, that humankind was created with, was suddenly lost. And now, according to Paul, here in Ephesians, he says, I have restored that for the Christian. You are once again face-to-face before Him in blameless innocence. How can that be? Because he associated us in Christ. You were co-crucified. You were co-buried. You were co-raised from the dead when Jesus was. Hallelujah. The implications of the fall are therefore completely canceled. How often have you referred back to the quote fall and said, well, you know, This just is my nature because of the fall. Or they're bound to act that way because of the fall. Or, you know, the things going on in my household are just because of the fall. Or, huh? How many times do we reference the fall as our present reality? And yet Paul, here in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, the passage we just finished, tells us, That is not the reality of the believer. You are once again face to face with Almighty God. 
He's given you his DNA and recreated you into a species that has never existed before. He dealt with the sin nature, not through anything you and I do, but through what Christ perfectly accomplished in his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, I don't know if you noticed or not, but man is this, this has lit my fire. Did you see how Francois translated when it says he associated us in Christ before the fall of the world? Did anybody stop and pause there for a moment and say, hmm, my translation doesn't say that, right? What does your translation say? Does anybody have it? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. I'm going to wait. And then I want you to stand up. First one to get it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Stand up real loud. Read it. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Stop. Again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Turn and say it. Thank you. I have during this series preached from that verse that Jesus was crucified and we were co-crucified with him before the foundation of the world. And that's true and thank God for it. But here's another beautiful reality about that. That the Greek word katabalo doesn't mean foundation, it means to fall away or to put in a lower place. There's a different word, thimelios, that means foundation. It's used in Ephesians 2.20. Thus, he correctly translates this, the fall of the world instead of the foundation of the world, as most translations do. Why is that important? Listen to me. Why is that important to you? Do we have this on a slide? I don't know that we do. I don't think we do. So really listen very carefully. And, and uh, that, that baby's going to get this. That, see, she, she stopped. This is for you, sweetie. It's going into your spirit as I say it. Watch this. God found us in Christ before he lost us in Adam. God found us in Christ before he ever lost us in Adam. I like that. Boy, that brings a new depth to that Christ was crucified before the foundation of the earth. Actually, it's Christ was crucified before the fall. God saw it all coming. Didn't catch him by surprise. So I want you to, I want you to note something. Um... Could somebody help me with our theology here as Christians, evangelicals? Somebody help me here, please. Could, could I get everybody's attention? Just, could you help me on a point of theology here? Do we have three gods? No. Do we serve three different gods? No. no. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is... One God, and yet we acknowledge that this one God has three distinct personalities in which he manifests himself. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. 
Is the Holy Spirit also God? This is not a trick question. Is Jesus also God? The Father is God. So I want to ask you a question. Who died for you? God died for me. In this verse of what we've read here, he associated us in Christ before the fall of the world. Jesus is God's mind made up about us. When it says that God sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh, verse 3 of our text, it actually is saying that God disguised himself in his son, took on human form, and died for me. God found me before he ever lost me. Hallelujah. So we're going to finish our time this morning reading verses 5 now. We're up through verse 4. And I know you thought, dear Lord, he's only in verse 4 and we're supposed to go to verse 13. How's he going to do this? I'm simply going to read verses 5 through 13 now from the mere translation with very little comment because I want you to hear how beautiful this is as Francois translates it. Verse 5. Sin's symptoms are sponsored by the senses, a mind dominated by the sensual. Thoughts betray source. Spirit life attracts thoughts. Thinking patterns are formed by reference, either the sensual appetites of the flesh and spiritual death, or zoe life and total tranquility flowing from the mind addicted to the spirit realities. Pause, sila. See, this is what Paul is arguing. Of course the Christian can dip back into that sensual mind, the, quote, mind of the flesh. If you choose to live there, you're going to have a very unhappy, challenging Christian life filled with constant warring against the things that you would, the things that would please God. This is part of Paul's argument. It's still there because of the mind. Somebody said it this way. I have a saved spirit and a pagan mind. Do you get that? Do you get that? Just because you're saved doesn't mean your mind has been completely transformed yet, which is why Paul says it's so important for us to renew our thought life to be like the way God thinks. Why do you think every service before I begin teaching, I have you make that declaration? Because it's how he thinks. I choose to act, believe and act on what I'll read and thus I am transformed. I didn't like pull that out of the air one day because I didn't have anything to do. This is how it works. After you're saved, God wants to renew our mind to think the way that he thinks. Verse 7, a mind focused on the flesh, that is the sensual domain where sin held me once captive, is distracted from God with no inclination to his life laws. Flesh or self-righteousness and spirit are opposing forces. Flesh no longer defines you. Faith does. So it's impossible for those immersed in flesh to at the same time accommodate themselves to the opinion, the desire, and the interest of God. But you are not ruled by the flesh consciousness. Law of works, that is. 
but by a spirit consciousness, by your faith. God's spirit is at home in you. Anyone who does not see himself fully clothed and identified in the spirit of Christ cannot be himself. This word at home, God's spirit is at home in you, comes from the Greek word echo, and it means to have in hand, to hold. It's a sense of wearing like a garment, which is why I called this message this morning or titled this message clothed with the spirit of God the life clothed with the life of the spirit to be in Christ is to be clothed with a new garment you are in Christ you're joined with him he continues verse 10 the revelation of Christ in you declares that your body is as good as dead to sin Good as dead to sin's demands. Sin cannot find any expression in a corpse. Oh, I don't know. I should have just started there. This whole thing would have been shorter this morning. Sin cannot find any expression in a corpse. Look at your neighbor and say, You old dead thing, you. <laughs> You dead thing, you. Now we understand the context of that. We're dead to sin, but we're alive to God because of this new identity that he's given us in Christ. You co-died together with him, yet your spirit is alive because of what righteousness reveals. Verse 11. Our union with Christ further reveals that because the same spirit that awakened the body of Jesus from the dead inhabits us, we equally participate in his resurrection. In the same act of authority whereby God raised Jesus from the dead, he co-restores your body to life by his dwelling spirit. Who's struggling this morning with something in your body? Pain? Something out of... Right, a disease, you've got a cold, you're struggling. Lift your hand. Right now, Father, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, everyone that has their hand up, I just release this life-giving spirit to you or that family member represented by your upraised hand. In the name of Jesus, by his faith, I cancel that disease. I cancel that sickness. I cancel that pain in your body right now. Be released of it. Be released from it and receive this quickening of the Holy Spirit in Jesus' name. I love this. Here's all of verse 12. The entire verse, verse 12. We owe the flesh nothing. <laughs> okay, look at your neighbor and say, you're dead. <laughs> now look at him and say, you owe the flesh nothing. All of this is in context. You're a corpse. You're a corpse. You owe the flesh nothing. And you always do that with a smile when you say those words. Go home today, find a family member that wasn't here, okay, that hasn't heard the message yet. Grab them, smile at them real big, get right in their face and said, you're a dead corpse. You owe the flesh nothing. 
Now go download Pastor Jeff's message. <laughs> Isn't that great? Verse, verse 13, and we'll close. In the light of all this, to now continue to live under the sinful influences of the senses is to reinstate the dominion of spiritual death. Instead, we are indebted to now exhibit the highest expression of life inspired by the Spirit. This life demonstrates zero tolerance to the habits and sinful patterns of the flesh. Would you stand with me this morning?